as we now open up the word of your prophet Isaiah once more, open our eyes to see wonderful things. Amen. Okay, if um, you were here last week, we finished off on page 26, right at the top. So just um, finishing the last part of Isaiah 45, 1 to 7. And I very simply titled this section, God Addresses Cyrus as His Servant. Which, as we discussed, that's kind of surprising. Cyrus would be called God's servant when Cyrus did not acknowledge the Lord. So our, our discussion, just to recap last time, was basically around God uses governing authorities, even if those governing authorities are not Christian, or for that matter, even godly. He accomplishes his purpose through them. So we have a, a little bit of a tied-in discussion here as we bring it back to that discussion on authority. If you want the, the upcoming handouts, I have up until page 30 printed. They're on the table. So this is page top of page 26. So going back to the discussion on governing authorities at the top of the page, I, I, I thought we could inspect some of the parts of Scripture that talk about civil authorities. So let's look at Jeremiah 25, Daniel 4, and Romans 13. So before we move on with this whole section about God saying, Cyrus is my servant, is that fitting to call an unbeliever who conquered the lands and did not acknowledge the Lord a servant, God's servant? Sure, certainly he's part of God's creation, but how can he bear that title? Well, if anyone bears a title, God's servant, it's by his will and according to his grace. Jeremiah 25, someone have that? Verses 9 and 10. Maybe I'll, I'll start us out by reading that. So there we read in Jeremiah 25, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn with an everlasting ruin. So this is actually someone before Cyrus. Nebuchadnezzar is called God's servant. And notice, even though Nebuchadnezzar would boast, I conquered these kingdoms, God is saying, I will bring him against those nations. So this is something God says he does. He takes powerful rulers and nations and he uses them for his purpose. Yeah, that's that's one of the themes um, really throughout Nebuchadnezzar's reign in the book of Daniel. So let's turn there next. God is over every kingdom. Someone have Daniel four thirty two. So, okay, let's read this. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Yeah, this is a, a decree given against Nebuchadnezzar before he went basically insane and acted like a wild animal. Nebuchadnezzar, who was boasting, he had been given a warning from Daniel the prophet, but there he is boasting, I have done all this and didn't acknowledge God. So God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And within that context of him being humble, we get this, this neat reminder on the pages of Scripture. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. 
So that's an important reminder, isn't it? If someone is king or governor or whatever position of authority, they're given that position by God. He's over them. Finally, Romans 13, 1. Someone summarizes it up really quick. Uh-huh. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Yeah. And Paul's not, you know, just saying that out of the blue. He's echoing the words of Daniel, of the prophet Jeremiah, found throughout Scripture. There is no authority except that which God has established. And if there's an authority, they've been established by God. And keep in mind, just as Nebuchadnezzar was an awful king, you know, who did horrible things to God's people, so was Nero when Paul wrote that to the Roman Christians. An awful emperor. And yet he has to say and remind you and all of us, if there's someone in authority, they're there because God put them there. Now, as we mentioned, I believe, last time, if those authorities do evil, they're responsible for that. You know, it's, God will hold them accountable. But our job is simply to submit. So long as they're not asking us to do what Nebuchadnezzar asked those three men to do, to bow down to an idol, we still need to submit. Uh, actually, that's what our symposium at the seminary was about. It was about the two kingdoms, how we serve God in his kingdom, and yet we're under the kingdoms of this world as Christians. And I thought one of the, the presenters made a good point that we should resist, but not rebel. We should oppose, but not seek to have a revolution to overthrow the authorities. Nowhere do you see you know, Daniel and the three men, when they're told to go against God's will, Come on, Jews, let's overthrow these governing rulers. Let's, let's fight. Or when Jesus' disciples think that you know, he's going to restore the kingdom back to Israel means physically overthrowing the Romans, it's not God's intent. So Christians are supposed to individually resist godless laws, but it still means you don't try to overthrow the authorities. Verses uh, 5 and 6 we haven't read yet, so let's pick it up there. So we're in, once again, Isaiah 45. Verses 5 and 6. So I don't think we read those verses. So. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you. Though, remember he's talking to Cyrus, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. So can you summarize what people all over the known world might have thought about the Lord when Cyrus invoked the Lord's name? And he listed the Lord as just another one of the many gods he conquered or helped along the way. How would people have viewed the Lord when, when Cyrus said that or spoke that way? Because it was the God of Israel and everybody knew the conquering God Right. So Israel had a reputation, if they knew its history, of what, what they had become and how they became a nation. You know. But here is Israel, which had been conquered by the Babylonians. And now the God of Israel had to be helped, Cyrus says, by me. Cyrus will say, I restored the Israelites. Kind of makes the Lord look subordinate to Cyrus, doesn't it? So people at that time would have been thinking, 
Cyrus is, you know, not God's instrument. God needed Cyrus. But look at verses 5 and 6. God says, I summon you by name, Cyrus. I, I called it ahead of time. I call the shots. So even before Cyrus can boast, I help the Lord, God gets to say, Cyrus, I'm using you, and I'm going to equip you. I'm going to summon you, and I'm going to have you conquer. Kind of like God is uh, beating Cyrus to the chase. So when Cyrus boasts, Israelites, you can go back. The Lord is now going to be blessed by me, so he can bless me. The people of Israel could say, sorry, um, we already knew this was coming. God says he did it. So Cyrus did not know God. He considered God really to be just a God in Jerusalem. When you, we read, for example, in Ezra, the book of Ezra, right at the very beginning, Ezra 1 verse 3, he calls the Lord the God in Jerusalem, as if he's some local deity. But here, as we see in verses 5 and 6, God says, I am the Lord, there is no other. There is no other God, Cyrus. Know this. And if Cyrus should know that, the whole world should know it, that Cyrus has conquered. But God has had a bigger audience in mind. He's not just interested in teaching Cyrus a lesson. Who's included in these verses? Everyone. Yeah, from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there's none beside me. Where's the God of Cyrus today? Who's worshiping him? Practically no one. Whereas who's acknowledged and recognized the Lord is God? Throughout time and history, God's church has stood. And it's across every culture and language of this world. And still to this day, people acknowledge there's none beside the Lord. How does uh, verse 6 expand on the thought of verse 3? So verse 3 we have, So that you may know that I am the Lord who summons you by name. It repeats itself. Right? It repeats so that Cyrus may know, and then verse 6 is not just Cyrus. People. All people, yeah. So God's not just acting on Cyrus's benefit, obviously, or recording this for Cyrus's benefit. He's writing it for your benefit. Uh, to bolster your faith and, and everyone that came after to know, you know, you can charge Cyrus with helping Israel or you can say that Cyrus conquered, you know, all these nations and, and helped the Lord, but God all along had it planned out that Cyrus would do that. So it's for our benefit. All right, let's, let's review this section. What comfort would this section, 45 verses 1 to 7, what comfort would it give to believers in ancient Jerusalem God is Almighty and He keeps His promises. He keeps His promises. That's right. Yep. We're especially going to see that in the second half of this chapter and the next. God's stressing Cyrus's gods. He's going to refer to the God of um, the Persians and the God of the Babylonians. They're dumb. They're, they're mute. They can't answer. They can't act. So he's going to bring that topic up. What other comforts could they find from this section? Picture their circumstance. Um, they're going to find themselves exiled to Babylonia. They're about 70 years. And then decreed by Cyrus that they can return and rebuild. 
Well, first they have to acknowledge that they sinned, and that's the reason God was punishing them and putting them in captivity again like they were in Egypt. Right. And that their prayers were following heard by God and he Cyrus the king to deliver them. But um, they couldn't do it on their own. They had to wait for God to choose someone. God works through our hands and feet. Right. Whether we know it or not, and he works in ways to use evil people to do good things and people who don't believe in God to do good things for God's children. To bolster their faith, he says, this impossible is going to happen. An unbeliever who conquers nations is suddenly going to conquer Babylon and restore you. So imagine if they're sitting in exile to have that comforting promise, God can fix this and he will fix it in a way that he foretold and then when it gets fulfilled to praise him that it did. What about, what about you today? What comfort does it offer you? These, these particular verses, the start of chapter 45. God's Certainly is specific how God's in control, isn't it? When it mentions Cyrus by name, and that God can use evil rulers today still. If he can do that with Cyrus, he can do it today and continues to rule over nations. How about this? Can you defend the statement, God directs the destiny of nations? Yes. Absolutely. Certainly this is one place you can turn to in Scripture to, to testify to that. Uh, I like what Paul says in Acts 17 as he's trying to witness to them. He says, um, from one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should be. So, I don't know, I've got kind of a small map here. You can't really see this map so well, but every boundary, every border that nations have had throughout history, Paul's saying, God determined how far those nations should expand and where the people should live and who would live there at what time. That's a pretty bold statement of God's providence and direction over history. It also shows that you can bring nations to an end, as we see nations turn over after World War II and World War One, and even in the Spanish-American War, we've got the Western area plus the Philippines and Guam. Yeah, directs the destiny of entire nations. Entire nations, so you have to take confidence in that that he's in control, even though it looks like things are going haywire in China and haywire in uh, Ukraine and Russia again. And then uh, even Herzegovina has started up again. How easy, when you consider all those circumstances, how easy would it be for a Christian to say, is God really managing? Is he in control? Despite all that, we can still confess he's directing the destiny of nations. Nations that you thought would be in peace Back at and no matter and they get proud too no matter how proud they get they need that reminder Nebuchadnezzar got yeah. <laughs> he had something what yeah think of a think of Psalm 2 the Lord scoffs at them when the nations rise up against him God laughs when he when he sees the powerful nations of this world thinking They've got it. God says, no, you don't. I've anointed my king. Well, I, I like the end of verse 4 because it says, I gave a name to you, though you do not know me. 
I mean, even if those people who didn't believe in God, he was still there with them. He created them. Right. So this, this section is a good place to turn that it doesn't matter what the nation is, God directs and uses them. Uh, I liked in the, I found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, keep in mind, this is the time of Moses. So we're talking about 1440 B.C. This is 700 years before Isaiah's time. God says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand. So this is in conjunction with, he promised you're going to receive the promised land, but this also is going to happen, that they're going to take you away and you're going to be swept in and conquered. And yet, right there with all Moses' promises were that they would be the one through whom all the nations would be blessed. What was that reference again? Um, Paul talking about the borders. That's Acts 17. Yeah. Also, uh, Psalm 33.10, The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. That God you know, puts an end to the, the evil plans when he says, okay, it's not accomplishing my purpose anymore. This is too far. We need to cut it off right here. Isaiah 10, he said, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I sent him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me. So God says, Assyrians, I used you. You were my club. But now you Assyrians, woe to you. You're also going to have it coming because of your sin. What do you think? Agree or disagree? God ought to bless America. Oh, yeah, we deserve it. <laughs> I'm guessing by your laughter, you're saying... Well, he doesn't have to do anything but whatever his will is. Right. Anytime you say God ought to, and then it's a condition where someone should be blessed. No. Who, who, says, who can say they deserve God's goodness? Even, you know... A, a church body or a, a person that serves God all their life still should not be able to say, I deserve God's blessing. Um, we certainly will pray God bless our nation, and we ought to pray for our, our rulers and leaders and for peace. But if, if you start to claim because we are better than other nations or because our nation accomplishes more good in the world, then no, we don't deserve God's grace. It's all, all grace. And you have to remember, God doesn't carry out his purpose for the sake of ruling authorities or the people that they rule. He carries it out for his own sake. So God does not bless America because USA is intrinsically good. It's only for the sake of his church and for his plans and purposes for his kingdom. Uh, can you criticize the following statements? And just based on what we looked in Isaiah 45, see if you can compose a more accurate statement. How about this? America was blessed by God because it was Christian. Okay. Why would you criticize that statement? Well, because there's, ever since Israel, <clears throat> there has never been a, well, okay, they were a Jewish nation, granted, but I mean, but there has never been a Christian nation in New Testament times. Right. There have been nations that have had Christian rulers, you could argue, or there have been nations that have had some Christian morals and Christian people, but can you ever say there's been a physical Christian nation? And especially America, when it's in our Constitution that everybody has the right to worship whatever they want. Okay. There's so, a statement. 
It's a, it's a free country. So from the very onset, it was never a nation that says you need to be Christian, which you can't legislate Christianity anyways. It's a gospel of freedom. It only comes by the preaching of the word. So, but even, even then people argue, you know, there are a lot of deists that founded our nation as well. And they were in favor of Christianity is good, but so is any religion people want. We'd be in awful sad shape if we fall if the only thing we read was Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Right. He tore most of the pages out because they didn't agree with him. That's that's true, and you know God worked through him despite his cutting up his Bible to accomplish his purpose. Uh, so how would you fix that statement? America was blessed by God because it was Christian. How would you fix it? Yeah. America was certainly has been blessed in many ways, but it's because of God's mercy on America and part of his plan. Right. So, yeah, America was blessed by God is true, right? Yes. Uh, prosperity as far as wealth, prosperity as far as not having too many native wars on its soil or facing the, the trials of many other nations, prosperity with security, prosperity with being a, a leader on the world stage and having a lot less fears than other nations because of its power. But then when you get to that second half of the statement, maybe you might want to say because... It was his purpose, or because of the Christians who he blessed within it as well, perhaps? I think you could say, though, that historically America has had a lot more Christians living in it than many other countries in the world. Sure. And those Christians living in the country act as salt and light for the rest of the So there's something to be said to the second half of that expression, right? Because it was Christian. America is and has been a predominantly Christian faith nation. So, so that, that is true. But it doesn't mean it's a Christian, you know, like, like Israel was supposed to be, and even Israel failed to be the nation of the Lord. Yeah? I think, I feel that maybe a lot of people misconstrued them about the, the, like Bethany said, about having more Christians. I think it was because of our liberty to practice and, and to uh, talk about our faith, that we had that liberty more than other countries did. So we may have been more vocal about it because of that, but I, don't yeah. know. I still wouldn't say we were more Christian. You can go back to the time of Constantine when Christianity became legal in the, the Roman Empire, and suddenly you had this state-sponsored religion, in a sense, where it was a good thing and Christians could practice their faith openly and suddenly you had the growth of church leaders having conferences and basilicas and the growth of Christianity, but then you know, within a generation or two there were emperors that changed the tide and then it changed back and then it changed the tide. Um, that same thing can happen for any nation that has the Christian freedoms that we now enjoy. They shouldn't be taken for granted and they should be viewed as a blessing from God not to overlook um, how about the other statement there? George Washington overcame everything because he trusted in the Lord. No. Change George Washington for any name, and that's a theology of glory, right? This idea that if you just trust God, things will go well for you. Is that true? Not for this life. You'll be blessed. You know, you'll have peace. You'll have the promise of an inheritance that cannot fade. But you know, look in Revelation chapter 12. You know, they didn't fear. They didn't shrink from death. And they are the ones who are blessed because they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. If blessing is merely you win battles in this life and you have success, you're not looking at the Christian faith, you're not looking at the kingdom of God. 
So, okay, but also, why was he blessed? Because he put his trust in the Lord. What's that? Because he put his trust in the Lord and asked for the Lord to die and I'm sure, I hope. Right, so he, he could personally, by his own faith, say, the Lord has done this. He has blessed me. I trusted in him. He could perhaps, as a, as a Christian, proclaim the Lord has accomplished his purpose because I trusted in him. But is that why God did it for the whole nation that he led? I think God used him just like Cyrus because yeah. it, originally he was a British soldier. And uh, he was serving in America. He wasn't very good at it as a um, reservist. His leadership had to be developed and trained just like a David for him to have faith in accomplishing what he needed to do. And I also think it's because he had uh, other fellow Christians who had confidence in him that sure. made him through because actually Washington was not that great a general. And with Congress not paying... The there were times where he almost yeah. lost his entire army, right? Yes. Yeah. yes. So that's not a good general if you lose your entire army. Maybe some people might argue with his perseverance, perhaps. He, he was a good general. But circumstance really brought about the, many of the things that he was blessed with. Right. Uh, if you look at history, it's, it's very nuanced. If we say George Washington did it all, George Washington would probably be the last person to say that. He, yeah, he would have... Right acknowledged Providence's hand in it. God did bless you know, the, the start of our nation that it would happen. I mean, I'm sure George Washington himself rest, wrestled with the idea, who is my allegiance due to? Because he started as loyal to the British crown and eventually he had to say, I'm going to serve this nation. Trusted in the Lord. Yeah, all, all of this is very complex and I think we're, we tend to simplify it and then say, that's why it happened. But really it's God has a purpose. His purpose and, was to establish the United States and right. us united. Because when you look at the Civil War, the main thing Abraham Lincoln was trying to do was to maintain the nation. You cannot have everybody's state doing their own thing. And that's the difference between the United States and other countries. They have turnover after turnover, right after right assassinations, they can't get the economics together. Instability, yeah. Yeah, but we, we are one of those stable nations that people really come to. Up to this point, which um, at our symposium, one of the uh, presenters was a historian at the professor at the college and said, any nation after 250 to 500 years experiences some sort of revolution. Mm -hmm. And if any nation lasts 250 to 500 years, you can expect some sort of major overhaul it, it has happened with every nation. We, we've been you know, look, talking about the Babylonians, the Assyrians. You could get into the Persians, the Romans. Uh, they, they might survive more than 500 years, but it's a major turnaround from a Roman Republic to the empire. Uh, the changes happen. But what we can say when we evaluate history as a Christian, we don't need to say, oh, God did this for this person or that. We can say he works all things, rules over all things, and works all things for the good of those those he loves and for his church. Yeah. If we start saying it's for a particular place or people, we start to lose sight of that, right? 
so whether it's in China right now or in our country, whatever he has done, it's for his purpose, for his church and for his people, for his kingdom. And when we start to say it's for a particular nation or people, we lose sight of that. And we can praise him for what he has done for blessing his church to prosper in our country and that Christians have had freedom and be, been able to send out missionaries and, and be a, a safe place for the gospel to this point. Uh, but when it ceases to accomplish that purpose, God can work through any nation. Do you think Israel is suffering because they will not accept Christ as the Messiah? Yeah, there's a, a whole whole related discussion there, yeah. Because I'm seeing more Jewish people turn to Christianity because they live under the law of Moses and it's a very selfish type of religion. The law of righteousness, which is based on works, not on Christ. Yeah, I think we can look at... That's a good question. So, it, you know, what, what about modern Israel? What are they facing? Is that, you know, working God's purpose? Look at the pages of Scripture. That's how he accomplished it in the past. We don't have a prophet today that's specifically able to, to say that, but we can say we do know God does that. And we do know God is patient with Israel, not wanting anyone to perish. So if someone is physically claiming to be a, a descendant of Abraham, he wants them to be in the, the holy Christian church, not just the physical nation. Yeah, that's a whole other discussion, too, because some Christians get lost in that, and they think if we bless Israel, then we'll be blessed. But no, it's not all who are Israel are Israel. Good, good discussion to get onto that, too, in, in Romans 9. Uh, we, get, we get so tied up, like the disciples did, on earthly nations, and our allegiance sometimes gets so tied up with earthly rulers and nations, we forget where our foremost allegiance must always lie with the Lord and, and his church. How about this? Uh, let's examine to see how God's actions are centered on Christ. How about Acts 2.23? Acts 3.18 and Acts 4.28. Good discussion today. Acts 2.23. Okay, let's see if we can, hear, let's listen as you read that then. Was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. So it's talking about Peter is talking in Pentecost there. Jesus was handed over, handed to wicked men, put to death, nailed on the cross. But what does Peter just say why that happened? Yeah, and I like how he says both set purpose and foreknowledge. So God knew it would happen, and actually God planned for that to happen. So that's a, a neat way to see that all every moment in history leading up to that point was part of God's plan, that his son would be handed over to the hands of wicked men. We're going to see that. It's in Isaiah 53 especially. We're going to see that the Holy One of Israel is going to suffer. That was always God's plan. And he also said to repent in verse 19 and turn to God, and he would wipe out the sins of refusing Jesus. Right. So that's, a, that's key. It all centers on that. How the Jewish nation is acting now, and Jewish people still won't repent of it. Right. So the, the whole mode of history for the not just the Jewish nation, every nation centers on Faith in Christ. How about Acts 3.18? Acts 3.18. 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 Ac
creation is the fulfillment. But this is how God fulfilled what he had, what he had foretold, foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. So God fulfilled what he foretold, and it centers on the suffering of Christ. Uh, just as he foretold the coming of Cyrus and everything for his people, he foretold and fulfilled that his son, the, the chosen one, would suffer. You can actually go back all the way to the first thing God said after the fall into sin, saying to the devil, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The suffering of the chosen one. Acts 4.28 reads, They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Notice how the apostles wanted to emphasize God's sovereignty and his providence and fulfilling his word as it relates to Christ. Because people would wonder about that. Why did he have to suffer? Part of God's plan. Look at the prophets. Look what God foretold. Uh, this is his controlling of history. Or as Paul says in Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, he sent his son. Okay, that's all I had for these verses. Any other thoughts, comments on verses 1 through 7? So, with this in mind, if, if this is the plan, that God's going to use an unbeliever like Cyrus, naturally, what might God's people question? Why? Right? Why would you want to use him? Why don't you want to use someone like that sits on the throne of Israel to accomplish your purpose? Why couldn't there be a, a king from David's line? Why couldn't Zedekiah be a king that rises up and do, does this? Or why couldn't, you know, good king Hezekiah accomplish your goals? Why does it have to be an ungodly ruler? So, Isaiah 45, 8 to 14, I titled, No one should dare to question God's plan. Have you ever watched something like a basketball game or a football game where someone in the bleachers was challenging the calls made by the referees? Never happens, right? Oh, we had a guy, he embarrassed Payson so bad. He was the father of one of the Payson players. Okay. And that guy was so loud in every game. Ref, you like me. Oh, man. That guy. Finally, the patient people wouldn't even let him ride with them to the game <laughs> in the neighboring county. They wouldn't even let him sit with them at the bleachers. He was just so oh, Right. He had his son with him there. He was just so old. Yeah. Sportsmanship usually is worse off the field than on the field. Oh, man. Terrible. So how did that person appear to you as they shouted across the stands to argue with the person running the game? Kind of frustrating as you're watching that happen, right? That they're they're questioning they're not they're not the one closest to the play and they're trying to direct the game from the bleachers. Have you ever experienced someone openly questioning God's plan? Oh, yes. <laughs> there was a pastor who told the story about uh, a woman who talked to him uh, Grandfather died. Her grandfather. Okay. And she said, "How could God do this to us?" But he was ninety-two years old already. You know? Right. So yeah, somebody like that. Yeah. Not not seen in the moment. God's plan was that that person gets ninety-two years of grace when yes. when Moses says seventy or eighty if we have the strength, right? <coughs> so yeah, we are quick to openly question God's plans, even when it seems ridiculous, and we have no argument. Oh, even the weather. 
Sure. People question the weather. <laughs> yeah, that's just me. They always question and always trying to define things the way he wants. In the case of uh, this circumstance, you might wonder if the people had a right to question. Why, why is God using Cyrus? Come on. So maybe they had a legitimate argument. But even then, we're going to read what God says in response here. Uh, Isaiah 45, verse 8 is where we left off. A little bit of a segue before we get to that, that discussion here. He says, You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, I the Lord, have created it. So a bit of a segue topic here. Uh, unless God causes rain to come down, the earth lacks water, needs for life. How is the same true regarding righteousness? Unless you have faith in God, you will never see his blessings, really. And sure. You will never see the wonders of God because you're being critical of everything that happens. And so as far as receiving it, you're right. It's through faith. You look at that parable, the, the different soils. But if God does not send righteousness, where is it going to come from? Right, and that's, that's the verses I listed there. Um, Psalm 14, for example, um, it says, The fool says there is no God. They're corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There's no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there's any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. So if you're looking for righteousness, and it's not showers from heaven, you're not going to find it. I'm going to put this down so it doesn't blind you. That, that screen will hopefully block the sunlight in your eyes. Just a little click of a button. I didn't notice, sorry, until now. Yeah. So also, uh, Romans 3.21, Paul echoes that. He says, um, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith to all who believe. So it, God gives righteousness. He doesn't tell you to attain it or tell you to work it up in yourself. It must come from God. And some Bible translations have it the, the righteousness of God, but some will also translate the righteousness from God. And I think that's a legitimate, good way to bring it out in the context here. It's really God is the source of righteousness. And it's received only through faith. Um, Jesus says in John, John 8, in the, the whole bread of life discourse, he says, The bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life. I'm the bread of life. I've come down from heaven. And later on he says, You are from below. I am from above. I am not of this world. So if we want righteousness... We seek and crave goodness from God, uh, as it was John 6, actually, in John 8. We need it to be given to us from God. And look at what we see in Isaiah 8. God's telling the heavens to rain down righteousness. Obviously, it's a metaphor, right? The, the showers of the heavens give life as the water comes. He says, that's how I give righteousness to the world. I send it to this world, and the world attains it from me. We're going to see that motif come up. It's just being introduced here. 
a little bit. We've seen God talking about pouring on waters. We'll get to chapter uh, 55, for example. He'll talk about uh, the waters and the showers that he'll send. So that's, this is a little bit of a segue, verse 8, that doesn't tie in with the rest of the theme as tightly. But that's an introduction there, that God's saying, I, I cause goodness. Why would you question me? So now we need to read verse 9 through 12. And here we get the whole idea of, this is my plan, world. I'm sending righteousness. I'm using someone like Cyrus to accomplish my purpose, but I'm the source of everything good. And you want to question me? Someone want to read for us verses 9 through 12? Who can read those verses? Judy? Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? And you can read verse uh, 11 and 12 if, if you would. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker, concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. Yeah, we'll pause there. So who can question me, God is saying. And then if you look at the next verse, I'm going to raise up Cyrus. I'm going to do that and I'm going to use him. So why would you question my working? Um, this reminds me of that hymn that we sing, uh, Behold Our God, where it's who has given counsel to the Lord, who can question any of his word, who can help question the one who knows all things or teach the one who knows all things, who can question any of his ways. Um, can you share some of the ways you've experienced people questioning God's plan and his ways? So Henny shared one, you know, the fact that somebody dies and they, they question God's timing on their death or the, the method or way that they die. Natural disasters. God's natural disasters. He says, I send calamity, I create life, and I send disaster. God is in charge. Obviously, it's because of the curse of sin we must face that, not that he's delights in evil or sending calamity. In fact, we saw that, I think, uh, two weeks ago. God says, I don't delight in sending calamity. Someone has another comment? Yeah. Uh, uh, God's calling on his servants, you know, is scary when he calls you to go to a mission field or give up everything. Right. Because, you know, you said you're, you're faithful, you believe in him. But boy, I tell you, it takes a big step of faith to right. get on the plane, going to someplace you never been, can't speak the language, don't know the people. When uh, people graduate from our, our seminary, Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, for the, the first place they serve, they simply are to say, Lord, send me. And they, they have what we call an assignment. So it's, it's a divine call that the congregation is calling them to come. But the, the basically the, the seminary governing board, the district leaders, they'll say, here's where you're going to serve. And they're, they're only able to say, here am I, send me. And they don't know, you know where it's going to be. And they don't know what part of the, the world or what culture they're going to face or what type of a setting they're going to be in. You know, I've heard people say, you know, on assignment day, I, I don't want to be here and I don't want to be there. And that's exactly where they get sent, you know, that, that type of a place. So, and uh, 
My dad was a teacher, so when he was on assignment day, he made clear and he told me, you know, I, I don't want to be at a one-room school. Well, guess where he got sent? <laughs> to a one-room school. And he stayed there for 43 years, so. Oh, uh, Penny's mom, when we were coming to America, she said, please, don't live in California because of all the earthquakes. We ended up in California. <laughs> yep. We have to conquer our fears to trust God because it's a big step. So people question God's timing if death comes, if natural disaster comes. When it comes to those who serve in the church, uh, they might wonder about the call that they have to serve and if it's the right place and the right time. But if God's calling, as we have today through his people, don't question it. Have faith. Other ways that people question God's plan and His ways. Just criticizing the weather. Sure. We can't trust in God. Yeah. Trust so, so far we've been talking about, uh, apart from the divine call, we've been talking about mostly how the timing of God's things in history. What about His Word, right? Think about how many things people question. Well, God, why did you, why did you have to say that this is the way that it works? Or think about how progressive Christians question his establishment of marriage, of gender, of sexuality. People question that and say, is that really the way God wants it? They question his ways in the way he created this order of creation and instituted things like marriage. I think it's because this generation uh, has everything new and exciting and it just, it's just uh, uh, we, we was Every generation so proud, they think everything... I know, they think they know everything, and they just, you know, why can't we bend the rules? We are better than the last, yeah. We're um, better than the last generation. One thing, it's hard to believe that this coming generation is doing is, they're not just applying um, gender neutrality to um, people, they're doing it to God. And they're saying, well, I started, very proudly saying, I started referring to God in the gender neutral, you know, in this year, like they marked the year they started, like they became enlightened... And we know Jesus is in the flesh. He became true man, not true woman. So how is it so hard to acknowledge Jesus as man? And the fact that God calls himself Father in heaven, is that so offensive that we can't refer to him as our Father in heaven anymore? Well, it's recorded that after so many days he was circumcised. I never heard of a girl being circumcised. Right. Or just the... The, the way that people question God's ways with his teaching, the way he established anything, uh, we might question God when we want something to work for our plan, but we don't see how he's working it for our good, right? Yeah. I was just thinking of with the marriage and the common misconception where you have the scripture that says you shall obey your husband, and even Christians go, well, he doesn't mean that for us in today's life. <laughs> okay, sure. That, yeah, the role of men and women, where women are called to submit and husbands are called to be the loving head. People question that and they say, no, nah, that, that doesn't fit our time and our, our culture. Why would God do that? Well, they don't, they don't see the picture of Christ and the church in there. And they question, yeah, things like the role of men and women. Is, exactly. So, so many ways um, that people will question God's working. And I, I think we need to experience this too. As, as we read these words... When do we act like we're the, you know, the potsherd that's questioning our maker? And when are we saying, Lord, I could have done, I could have done it better than you, or Lord, I got a better idea. Uh, when we're, we're just like what Isaiah says, we're quarreling with our maker, and we're nothing but potsherds.
in the big picture of really dust, as we must confess. And as dust, dare we question the, the one who formed us? So how would you rate our ability to question him on a scale of one, no ability, to ten, equal to God's wisdom? Yeah. That's why Isaiah says, woe to those who quarrel with their maker. If, if we are so proud to think that we stand anywhere on that scale to compare with God, how do you think most people, though, want to rate themselves and view their own wisdom compared to God? Our sinful nature likes to put us right up there with God. When we know we're, we're right to acknowledge, we should be a zero when it comes to questioning his ways. But the human heart and this world wants to be nine or maybe a ten, possibly an eleven, right? That our ability to give God advice. It's like the uh, car tags, God is my co-pilot. <laughs> right. No, you're the pilot and God's your co-pilot. No, God's the pilot. Right. You're the co-pilot because if you go through a real bad storm, you start calling on him right away to help you get through it or before you crash the plane. It's like, aren't you, aren't you willing to let go of the controls and just let him be yes. the pilot? <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, actually, it's better to say, God is my pilot and I'm a passenger. Yeah. Yep. And actually, that's a, that's a good segue for where we're going to head in chapter 46, because God's going to say there, I carried you. You know, I lifted you up from the womb, I carried you and lifted you up. Uh, so yeah, that, that God is not just helping us along the way or consulting us for what we think is a good idea. He is the one that we are completely dependent on and ought to be content and rejoice in that that he is holding us, guiding us, carrying us along the way. All right, verse um, 13. So now that we've just established, or God has established with his readers, who's going to question me? Then we get to verse 13. Pastor. Oh, yeah. I see it's switched to chapter 49. Those are supposed to be fives, right? Oh, yes, sorry. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, so for the rest of this page to the review section, that should say 45. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Somehow it turned into a 9. But as I mentioned when Daryl was joking about how I messed up the, the page numbers on that handout before, I need a secretary who can't count because then they'll make me look smart. <laughs> Okay, 45, yep, verse 13. So we're not skipping chapters here. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild, and this neat, this possess of my city, that even though they've rebelled and he's destroyed the city and sent them to exile, he still calls on his own and set my exiles free. But not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. So God's plan was to use Cyrus, an unbeliever, to accomplish the restoration of Jerusalem. Cyrus's decree to have Jerusalem rebuilt and the exiles returned would have felt amazing. In fact, one of the Psalms, I can't remember the number now, says, we were like those who dreamed when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. But still, it was out of place because it was Cyrus. 
but God had foretold it and fulfilled it. Can you list at least three other times God used unbelieving rulers to accomplish his grand purpose? Sure. As, as we read from Peter, right? God had him handed over to the hands of wicked men, but that was his will and purpose. So Pilate was a time where God used an unbeliever to accomplish his purpose. Pharaoh with Moses. Sure. God repeated several times, um, I'll obtain my glory through, through Pharaoh. And he foretold and eventually hardened Pharaoh's heart, who hardened his own heart. And God said, that's what's going to happen, but I'll accomplish my glory as I decimate and destroy Pharaoh and his army. Yep. Joseph. Yeah, with, with Joseph and Potiphar and how Joseph was elevated by the Pharaoh to be the second in command. And Joseph said, God intended this. Uh, he used even the, the, God, the godless Pharaoh who worshipped you know, the, the Nile and the, the calves and the, the Egyptian gods to save the people of Israel. Accomplished his purpose. Jacob's family was saved. Yeah, those are all some that I mentioned and thought of. Um, think about um, Caesar Augustus' decree. Luke has to point out that's why he was in Bethlehem. But that decree, that census that was taken, was also accomplishing God's prophecy uh, that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem as prophesied. So lots of times we can see in the pages of Scripture examples of that happening. So... Returning to the theme of the, the first part of this chapter, right? So don't question God's ways. He's done it before. He did it with Cyrus, and he'll do it again. Um, it says they're not for a price or reward. God actually worked it out so that Cyrus didn't demand the Israelites pay a tribute or have to pay a price uh, to be able to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. In fact, they even, they even got support and were able to take the temple articles and things back. Uh, God didn't demand his people pay him back for the gift of restoration. What do you think? God always operates on the basis of grace. <clears throat> always on grace. Is it always on grace? Doesn't it have to be on grace? If he's given us everything? Right. He's our provider. So if, if you ever do say God's going to make us pay him back, no. you, can't pay him back. <laughs> you can't pay him back. How can we ever repay the Lord for all he's done? And I think that's a picture he's bringing for the people. When, when they're brought out of exile, they didn't have to go down and, you know, and, and say, Lord, we'll, we'll give you ten times over what, what you deserve and we'll build up your temple and we'll, we'll cover it with gold for you, God. And No, God did it because of his own sake. And he did it out of grace for his people. He uh, that, right. As he just mentioned there, you know, I'm your maker. I'm going to do all this. Uh, how can you question it? And you're not going to be able to pay me back, and I'm not going to demand a price. So even though it was a godless ruler like Cyrus who operated on the basis of wanting power and wealth, God still made it and made the circumstances so even Cyrus would just do it for free. And say, okay, Israel, you're going. It was for Cyrus's own self-interest, when you look on the pages of history, to do this. But it was also for the benefit of Israel because of God's working. Just amazing that grace abounds. He set... Israel free without cost or demand of payment. 
and how that must have just run in their, their minds and hearts that we are set free because our God is a gracious God. And he worked through someone like Cyrus because he controls over the events of history. And he's working all history for his purpose and his promises to be fulfilled. I in my Bible, the end of verse 13, uh -huh. I like this because the Lord is speaking. He says, he will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. Yeah. So God is still in control, whether you think they are or not. Right. Yeah. Both uh, the, the possessive there is comforting for God's people, but they're not your exiles, Cyrus or Babylon or whoever took them to exile. They're still mine. I put them in exile and I'm going to bring them out. Yep. So we're going to pause here. We're at our time. And Bethany really wants to see the Packer game, so i got to <laughs> kind of wrap it up. We're going to pick it up at the top of this page, page 28 next time. And we'll jump into a new section then shortly after it, Isaiah 45. Why don't we close with a prayer about what we looked at today. Lord, we praise and thank you that even though we don't always understand why you do what you do in history or in our life, uh, we know we cannot question your ways because you are the source of all righteousness. In your wisdom, you many times planned out history in ways that we can only marvel at to accomplish your good purpose, all of which centers on Jesus. We praise and thank you for doing this out of your grace and in your mercy. Amen.